Well, we're at the coast line and uh, we've just been down to the beach where it's normally a summer paradise in the warm weather, lots of kids playing in, in the water and on the sand. But with me in minus seven, I have uh, Tim Cope. Maybe you'd like to tell me who you are. <laughs> nice to be here. Well, uh, I'm from Australia, but uh, I came to Finland in 1998. It was my exit from a law degree. <laughs> I'd spent six months doing law and decided that it was like a, uh, a slow death. And I found out about this amazing course called the Era Opus, International Era Opus course, or Wilderness Guide course. And I found myself within a few weeks at the age of 19 going from the law library to being on an island in, the, in central Finland, collecting mushrooms, learning to fish, learning to survive by the limits and the richness of, of nature. And it was it was the best decision I ever made. <laughs> uh, since then I um, took off on some journeys uh, across Russia by bicycle in 1999, 2000. Uh, I then did a journey for six months by, by rowboat from Lake Baikal in Siberia to the Arctic Ocean and eventually set off on a journey by horse from Mongolia to the, Dan the Danube in Hungary. Uh, a journey with, with three horses, a dog, on the trail of nomads. And I, uh, it's become my life, um, travel and also documenting them on, in books and, and documentaries. I thought I'd uh, firstly ask you a little bit about your time in Finland. I mean, because that's perhaps one of the experiences that then has inspired you to go on to do these other journeys. But um, how could you describe then Finnish nature or what kind of inspiration did you get from being in, uh, in the Finnish forests, lakes, and perhaps also, I know you're very interested in the local culture and, and uses of natural landscapes. So how did that inspire you? Well, I think when I came to Finland, I had a fairly, fairly uh, naive understanding, I think, of the meaning of wilderness, the meaning of nature, and particularly the meaning of conservation and, and engaging with nature. In my mind, uh, the course was going to be all about how to tread lightly, leave only footprints, take only photographs, that we'd probably learn about how to use equipment that was uh, low impact and I guess my I'd seen I'd, I'd read a lot and be, been inspired by mountaineers um, going to places where humans don't belong perhaps in the high mountains but um, it was a shock when I arrived in to begin the course and I think within the first week we had probably cut down 10 or 15 small trees <laughs> learned how to collect mushrooms and berries from the forest um, and it began to dawn on me that that wilderness is often a misunderstood term in Western sedentary societies. Uh, to us, wilderness is a place often that is inhospitable. It, 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 it brings to mind images of big, vast, open deserts or, or icy tundra or the Arctic or, or even the Siberian wilderness forest. But in Finnish, they have a word called, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's era. Yeah. Uh, and era, which, which translates to wilderness, 
is is an old term that once described the area where a clan or a, a family had rights for timber, fishing, uh, berries, basically everything that sustained their life. And so that to me was perhaps the biggest learning um, or the biggest lesson that completely changed the way I view the world <laughs> and that set me off on these journeys because I learned that, that wilderness is not a place where humans don't belong to the contrary nature. Wilderness is a place from which we come. It's our home. It is where we gain all, still today, even in our modern cities, it's where we gain all our sustenance from. And it, I think from then on I realised that it's engaging with nature that's important. It's touching it, feeling it, relying on it. Um, not so much simply passing through it and observing it. Um, and Finnish culture, I think, is, is all about that, obviously. It's a, it's a culture that, that evolved in the forests of, of Finland. And, and I guess from that point on, I, I took off really de really determined to, to understand the world through the prism of local indigenous societies and how that culture has evolved together with the land. To us, for example, the open steppe of Mongolia may appear to be pretty inhospitable, even for Finns. You know, there's no trees, for yeah. example. There's um, no firewood, therefore very little shelter. But the local people have devised a way of living in harmony with that environment over thousands of years by uh, migrating with the seasons with their animals. If they were to build a house, put up a fence, it would be suicide. There's not enough grass in that environment naturally occurring that would allow them to sustain themselves, so they need to move with that environment. It doesn't mean to say that that environment is a barren, inhospitable land. It's hospitable, but you have to look at it through the terms of nature. <laughs> and um, that's... Uh, for me, Finland's always been a been the place where I think back to where I learnt all those those very important concepts. Mm. Um, how easy or how difficult is it then to, in a way, you're saying that to go to different landscapes, you have to interpret it through perhaps the the usage also and the culture of the the local people. Uh, how easy then when you're travelling to very, in a way, alien landscapes that you're yourself used to, how can you begin to interpret those landscapes or do you have some keys that you can try to get into the, the feelings, the understandings of the environments there? Well, I think the, the first important thing <laughs> is to recognise that um, you need to learn from local people, from the people who's whose accumulated knowledge may have may reach back thousands and thousands of years. Um, I remember when I arrived in Mongolia to begin this journey that turned out to be three years to Hungary. I was terrified because I was dropped in the middle of what appeared to me to be a desert. <laughs> I had three horses and I suddenly realised that I had no idea what kind of grass these, um, these horses needed, where I'd find water, how I'd sustain myself. Um, but you need time, you need to s spend time, you need to... I needed to 
find people and and learn from them bit by bit and I think the most important thing was not to be reactive and 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 think that these people were doing it wrong that that uh, this environment was impossible to live in just to embrace it the way it was <laughs> I think that was the, the real key um, but for me it's pointless to try to understand culture, people, let alone a landscape, until you come to grips with the nature of a place. Mm. Um, I think the language, the outlook of people, is, is, is always connected with their natural environment, even if that natural environment may not play a role in their, in their lives if, for example, they live in the middle of a city. Um, but I think, for example, in Mongolia, the only way to understand where the people, the people in the city are at and how formerly nomadic people are trying to integrate into urban life is to go back to the step first and, and understand where they come from. Mm. Um, and that's the method I apply, I guess, <laughs> everywhere I go. Yeah. Okay, so nature is then the key to understanding society. Well, I personally think that by understanding the nature and the way in which, which humans have evolved in that nature, it can, it can really help one understand how cultures are so very different. Mm. Um, because viewed from the surface, cultural intolerance can, can arise very quickly unless you have some kind of understanding of the roots of that culture. Mm. And the roots of any culture, in my mind, begin in that natural landscape and um, I mean in, in Mongolia for for example we may come in and, and think that, that time for these people doesn't matter they don't wear watches they, they don't live a nine-to-five existence and certainly when we come in from the Western world and we want things to be arranged in nine-to-five schedules and they don't it can be frustrating people can get quite annoyed and if you see that in the cities in, in Ulaanbaatar um, it can appear to be chaos but on the other hand what's often forgotten is that time for them is perhaps even more crucial for for their lives than it is for us because for them it's life and death if they don't read the seasons correctly and move their animals from their their uh, their summer camp or their autumn camp down to the winter camp, their sheep may become uh, encrusted in heavy ice and snow, trapped in blizzards, they'll lose all their animals. But if they leave too early, they'll eat out all the pastures, the winter pastures, and then the animals won't survive until spring. And so for these people, time is certainly crucial, but it's measured more by the rhythms of nature, the seasons, and they look for many different signs uh, for what can be very unpredictable weather patterns so uh, rather than become frustrated for example as to to why nomad said that he's uh, going to arrive today and he arrives tomorrow uh, you need to really look at the origins of, of where that comes yeah. from and it's it's quite naive to dismiss that as being well these people um, don't have any time yeah. so therefore uh, it's, it's what the interpretation of time yeah time is yeah. um 
Oh, you've had a lot of experience, I mean, in, in Finland, boreal forests, and then also the whole, I mean, amazing expanse of uh, the northern Russian boreal forests, and then that contrasting to the travels you went through, through the, um, the deserts of Mongolia, the steppes then in Kazakhstan. Can you say something about that or expand that? that uh, how does that influence the, maybe, people and uh, use of the, the landscapes of those people that you've seen? Well, I think it's interesting that, that I remember going past a big field one day with some Finns and they said, oh, it's too too big and open and exposed. <laughs> and I think I think for Finns and forest people, the forest is, is, is their security, it's what sustains them. It's a place where they can gain everything for life. Um, they say in Russian that, that if you never know where you are, and you can never be lost. Mm. <laughs> and I certainly learnt during our course here in Finland that it's irrelevant as to whether you know where you are according to satellite or compass on a map. If you can have wood and um, and fire and water, then you don't need anything else and everything's okay. Uh, but on the steppe, uh, life's very different. Uh, the people there, they love the long horizons. They love being able to see everything and that brings them a great wealth and a sense of security. I remember my friend, um, a Mongolian friend in, in Australia, when I first took her into the, the forests, she, she was petrified and she had to go running out of the forest because she felt claustrophobic. She felt trapped and she, she, she couldn't stand being in a place where there wasn't a nice long, <laughs> nice long horizon. Um, but f for me, being able to um, traverse both those cultures is fascinating because it just reinforces to me how how that nature can can completely not only mould a culture but the mentality of, uh, of people and their their outlook I when I first came to Finland um, everything was new I, I didn't know the birds I didn't know the sounds or the smells and the, the trees but I learned that it wasn't the big high peaks brought the great sense of connection and happiness in me. It was just just being present in the forest, the sense of uh, walking across some crusty snow, stopping, collecting wood, finding some frozen berries, uh, setting up a shelter, eating, drinking, and just sitting and being in the forest brought an incredible sense of well-being that, that I often crave for <laughs> at home. And, uh, and coming back to Finland, I often think of that, just walking into the forest, making a fire and sitting there and experiencing it. And it's hard to describe. It, 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 it's a sense of well-being that um, I find hard to replicate in any other, other way. Um, it's a place where time slows down, a place where you feel part of a much greater web of life. And on one hand, I think that it's interesting that people talk about um, being a speck in this great, vast environment it's quite a humbling experience. It makes you realise that that your life is quite insignificant, that you're part of this bigger thing. On the other hand, it's it, it's very comforting to realise that we have a very important role to play in this great big web of life, and and that um, we can actually have a, a fairly significant effect on that web of life, for good or for bad, and. Uh, and I think that's that that kind of um, experience just 
gives one's life a bit of context. It's humbling but also empowering, and I, I think that's a a really good place to 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 start from. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know you, you lead uh, quite a few expeditions or trips, mainly to Mongolia with different uh, client groups. Um, are they mainly tourist trips or is there something that you want your clients or the customers that travel with you that go, for example, to Mongolia or maybe some other environment, something else that you'd like to them to get out of that experience that, as opposed to just the experience in itself? Well, no, I think the... The main reason that I started taking people from Mongolia was that that culture so deeply affected me. It made me aware that that our way of living, where I come from in Australia, is only one way of living. There are many other ways that you can approach life, and the the nomadic um, sense of family, community, their sense of harmony with the environment um, was something that I wanted to get across to others and. There was one experience, for example, I'll never forget riding through Western Mongolia. I'd been clinging to my horse for dear life all day, going along the edge of a gorge and looking down this great big uh, river below. And then in, from in front of me, against this backdrop of 4,000 metre peaks, ice and rock, there came this, this, this lady really casually guiding six or seven camels down that were packed to the hilt. She came up, stopped, got off, got the first lead camel to kneel down there was this in the sheepskin was a, a, a tiny little baby and it, it it left me with the sense that these people live on such close terms in camaraderie with their animals and through them with their environment that they perhaps put more trust in their animals with their precious loved ones than we do in our society with fellow human beings sometimes <laughs> and um, so anyway, when I now when I take people to Mongolia, the first thing I do is I tell everyone that they must take off their watch and put it at the bottom of their bag, and they're not to pull it out. Um, that they need to try to embrace and understand rather than project their own values onto this society. And a good example, for example, in the first few days, there's always a few people who are hesitant. Um, There'll be a case where we'll be invited into a nomad home, a, a yurt tent. There's no knocking on the doors in this culture. You walk straight in. There'll be a cup of tea on the boil. Everyone sits around and we talk, we share stories and drink tea. But in my experience, there's always two or three or four clients who, who kind of sit outside the gur and they don't want to come in because they feel that they would be imposing on this family and the mentality is such that well what happened what would happen if 15 people suddenly walked into my kitchen you know I, I wouldn't cope um, but meanwhile of course the nomad hosts are in inside the tent thinking you know what on earth are these people doing out there you know it's um, <clears throat> are they trying to offend us or <laughs> it seemed to be very offensive yeah. if you don't come in and there's these two different values and by the end of the trip I hope and usually most people have understood that and they do walk straight in and they can come to terms with the fact that that hospitality is the linchpin of survival in this environment it's it's not a a 
system of give and take it's a system of um, friendship wherein for a, a fleeting moment everyone recognises that that um, you're a part of each other's lives and certainly for, during my journey if you weren't to go into a girl or, or a nomad family um, it would be much like passing another sailboat in the middle of the ocean and not saying hello <laughs> to the other person There's a, everyone's living this very harsh harsh, uh, tough, tough life and it's a moment to stop and share and help um, and for nomads it's seen to be bad luck if a traveller passes by your door without coming in for a cup of tea and it's considered to be good luck if someone comes in and shares a cup of tea, shares their stories. In fact they say for the first three days a host has no right to ask the traveller where they're from, who they are, what they're doing. The obligation is just to serve them with food and shelter, um, and then they can uh, they can tell them to go on their way or <laughs> ask them ask them who they are. And um, some of the misconceptions that I like to try to dispel, for example, is that that nomads are poor. When people first see someone living in a tent, you know, a few children on horses uh, eating meat cut from their lambs and dried curd on the ceiling of their tents. People just have this impression that they're, they're poor, that they're living at the margins of society. But it's com it's very, very wrong to think that because, um, like in any society, there are rich and poor, but many of the nomads have thousands upon thousands of animals. Um, a camel these days in Mongolia is worth about 1000 to $1,500. Uh, a horse is probably about 500, so you can imagine if you've got a few thousand animals <laughs> and sheep and goats and everything else, you can afford to send your children to university and and, and, and whenever they need money, they can sell their animals. Um, but the pride of their life is their animals, their investment is their animals. Um, there's also a, uh, a myth or a dis uh, an illusion that nomadic people are not educated um, and that's not the case the the children these days uh, for the last century they go to to uh, dormitories where they they live for six to nine months of the year and then they return to their families in the summer um, and uh, I always got the sense that nomads had a much greater understanding of for example Australia than Australians did have of, uh, of these remote nomads in, in Mongolia um, there's there's some there's a lot of nomadic people who who love their life who would 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 choose to be there even if they had the choice to go elsewhere. Of course, there are, there is also others who, given the choice, would probably leave. But um, uh, I guess I like to think that through the course of these journeys with uh, with people from abroad that they. They're transformed in a sense. They they realise there's a lot more to this culture than than simply uh, what is often stereotyped as a backward, albeit romantic, primitive culture. There's something that we can all learn from from those people, even in our fast uh, changing modern world. Uh, during our chat, you haven't mentioned Australia very much and the Australian <laughs> environment. So, do you think um, is it important maybe to to change your environment, perhaps to see those things that perhaps we're uh, a little bit blind to when something's too 
common to us here, too close? Or is it so that there's something in the Australian environment where you've grown up, you're in a farming community, um, that has given you some you know, deeper values that you've taken with you on your journey? I think it's a combination of both. I think that that sometimes the things which are closest to us, we we have a very shallow understanding of because we don't perceive them as being exotic and interesting and and we think that we have a deep understanding of them and yet we don't. Um, but I was lucky to have a, a father who was into the outdoors. I grew up in rural Australia, um, spent all the summers bushwalking, surfing, canoeing, cross-country skiing in the snow. Um, and I always felt that I was most alive when I was engaging with my environment. I performed better in, in, in school after being out there in nature. Um, it, there was a part of me that lay dormant until I stepped out into the bush or the forest or the sea. And I guess I learnt too that, that, um, that life itself is a journey. And, and like in those, those wilderness journeys, it's actually our human qualities that that matter most when it comes to surviving, uh, overcoming challenges. It's not so much the latest and greatest technology that we can bring with us. It's knowledge is really, really important. Experience is really important, and that can give you a great sense of self-confidence too in in any situation. So, I was lucky to have those experiences, but I had a yearning to to see what the rest of the world was like from when I was very young. Um, I couldn't imagine a world where every second tree wasn't a eucalypt, for example, um, where at Christmas time there was snow and not heat. I was very curious to know what the rest of the world was like. And when I was 16, I did have the chance to go to Nepal on a trek. And um, the biggest effect from the biggest the most significant experience was seeing the culture realizing that that there are many different ways of approaching life uh, those people se- appear to be happy and um, <coughs> viewing the world through different lenses than I'd ever known existed and that's what that's what uh, drives me to travel onwards but it's also enabled me to come back to Australia with a very different view as well and I think that that viewed through the experiences I had here in Finland, um, I can come to much, to a much greater understanding of indigenous culture in Australia. Um, and having been through a lot of Central Asia where nomadic societies were dispossessed in Soviet times, I can much greater understand why uh, indigenous Australians faced uh, a kind of identity crisis when they lost the ability and the opportunity to live that traditional life, um, that what had once given them great pride and ability to survive was suddenly in this new modern colonised world irrelevant, and um, and viewed in that sense, it's it's um it it becomes obvious why there is so much difficulty for for indigenous cultures around the world, whether it be North America, Siberia, Australia, um, for them to integrate into this, this new reality. Mm. And yet I think it's more important than ever <laughs> that they that everyone can um, learn something from the traditions and go back to being in nature in order to cope with the modern world. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
just one last question. Uh, I know you're, or you are very much a nomadic person yourself that uh, travelling has been a very big part of your life for uh, a number of years now. But if you could choose just one place to go to, could you paint us a 30-second picture of that place from uh, all the places that you have uh, been to or perhaps even your, your home place? Where would you choose to spend some time now? Um, well, I, th I always think about the Altai Mountains in Mongolia and Russia, and it's a place where you can stand on a hillside and look into the distance. You've got some great big blankets of boreal forests carpeting one side of the mountain. The other side is, is barren and still, and you can see every, every little tiny um, contour of, of that landscape, almost like a digital map <laughs> laid out in front of you. There's glaciers, if you look in the distance there may be sand dunes uh, to the south. And I think what really makes the Altai Mountains in Mongolia special for me is seeing those two little white flecks. And those white flecks may be small, but they transform the feeling of that landscape, those two white nomad tents. And somehow having the nomads living within the nature and not dominating it, it humanizes the wilderness. It makes the wilderness appear more like a home than an inhospitable place where humans don't belong. Um, and it also makes me very aware that we're all part of a great big web of life. <laughs> and uh, and that's, that's a, it's a wonderful feeling. But the Altai has uh, an extraordinary diversity. Camels can be seen on one side of the mountains, bears in the forests on the other. Uh, horsemen, there can be lakes, rivers. It's uh, it's an extraordinary place that that if I had to choose a place to settle down in, it would be somewhere there. Yeah. Sounds fantastic. Well, thanks very much. I think we'll leave this cold place and uh, wish you well on your way back to warm uh, Australia. Australia. Yeah, yep. and uh, hopefully you'll be back here in the future with some uh, groups as well. Thank you. In Finland. Yeah, okay. I hope to. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Nature Path podcast. There's already a new episode on the way. Don't miss it. Subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. We love reading your comments and ideas for future episodes, so please drop us a line on any of the podcast or Taranapolko channels. To find out more about Tim Cope and his adventures, go to timcopejourneys.com where you can buy his fantastic book On the Trail of Genghis Khan, which is also available as a six-part DVD series. Or read about his cycling trip from Moscow to Beijing by bike, which is also available on DVD. I've been James Simpson. See you soon.